Watch Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temi, and here with me is Andy Leonetti. Hello. Hello, and we have Joe Fabush. Hi. Ready for this exciting and controversial episode. <laughs> we like doing this to ourselves, don't we? <laughs> we do, yeah. Controversy creates cash. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully it does. Well, today I plan to, I guess, talk until the two of you vote to tell me to stop because we're talking about the filibuster. <laughs> That'll be quick. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I like it. Thank you. I feel like that's what I do on every episode um, that I host. So <laughs> if Joe and I voted, that would constitute a two thirds majority. So indeed it would. For those of you who are wondering like, why a consumer legal podcast would be talking about this, it is still, <laughs> it is still a legal topic because the, essentially the existence of the filibuster does affect whether most new laws are passed into effect. Um, it is pretty much an integral part in the legislating process these days as I think Laura's got some interesting history. I do, yes. <laughs> and, and because of the Senate, I think we'll talk later a little bit later about the Senate Democratic majority's failed attempt to get rid of the filibuster. That's why we're talking about this 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 week. Yeah, it's yeah, it's sort of that. Why why filibusters now? <laughs> and I here I am also filibustering until someone yep. else can transition yeah, I I to, the next, the to, uh, to the next uh, topic well, of conversation. <laughs> Well, I think what we, our approach is not going to be from the political angle. Mm -hmm. I think probably if you listen to us, you're well aware of what the filibuster is and how it's been used in recent mm -hmm. years. So we wanted to take a little bit different of approach and talk about its history and what went into creating the rule, how it's changed over time, and what the efforts to either keep it or get rid of it mean. And just kind of provide a little bit of context for it. So this isn't specifically about voting rights or whether we should or should not get rid of the filibuster. It's all just providing context mm -hmm. so that if you're wondering about what's going on, you have a little bit of an idea of, of how such a Byzantine rule <laughs> became so important. I am a little bit of a legal history nerd, so I like to be Laura Temme, time traveling lawyer. So I'm excited that I get to do that a little bit today. If we want to go way, way back... The word filibuster is derived from <laughs> my new favorite word, freebooter, <laughs> which is the anglicized version of a Dutch word for pirate, combined with the Spanish word uh, filibusteros, I think. So that so free so freebooter probably refers to a boat, actually, right? But booter, my guess is, without looking up Dutch language. Yeah, so yeah, freebooter is the sort of English bastardization of that. I only know one phrase in Dutch, but it's not very helpful because I can't say it on the show. There's too many swears if I translate it, so I'll just, yes. uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys later. It is correct. <laughs> the Dutch word for boat is boot. Das boot. Fantastic. <laughs> I know that's not what it means in German. I'm just, you know what? I'm going to move on. <laughs> so in, in the original Senate rules... A motion was required by a simple majority to end debate on a bill. And um, in 1806, then Vice President Aaron Burr argued that the rule was redundant. So they basically just dropped it. The problem was this accidentally gave senators the right to unlimited debate. And theoretically, they could delay a bill indefinitely unless they got a supermajority of 60 votes. Aaron Burr st strikes again. 
I know. I, every time I, I'm, I'm such a musical theater nerd that every time I say Aaron Burr, I have to stop myself from saying sir because <laughs> I just end up slipping into Hamilton lyrics. I have to give an inside the episode note to our listeners here. Uh, we share notes before recording and Laura did in fact put <laughs> Vice President Aaron Burr parentheses sir. I did. <laughs> her notes. <laughs> so yeah i can't stop myself i'm sorry and so yeah traditionally the the filibuster involved a senator refusing to yield the floor by standing and talking for as long as they could so if you're an old movie buff you might remember jimmy stewart doing this in mr smith goes to washington i'm gonna i'm gonna stay right right here and fight for this <laughs> lost cause fight for this lost cause <laughs> I knew you were going to be better at it than me, so I'm really glad that you did it. And so, yeah, this is what what we call the talking filibuster, which is not used very much anymore. I'll get into a couple examples, but in the talking filibuster is where we get some of the really kind of ridiculous examples of people standing and talking for hours on end, and it really doesn't matter what you talk about during a filibuster. It allow, It is just a way that allows you to take over the floor. Yep, and, and sort of wear down everyone else, I think, <laughs> was the idea after a while. In the 1930s, Senator Huey Long of... Louisiana filibustered for about 15 hours where he read recipes for shrimp, fried oysters, and pot liquor. He probably would have kept going if it wasn't for needing a bathroom break at 4 a.m. <laughs> this is an important point that continues to this day that whenever a senator is holding the floor, they must remain standing at their desk. So when you got to go, either have a mess on your hands or you're done. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. And, and a more recent one um, in 2010, Bernie Sanders gave a pretty fiery eight hour speech against tax breaks for the nation's richest folks. And I believe I read that he he basically stood there talking for eight hours at his age after having nothing to eat that day but coffee and oatmeal. And he just yeah, he just kept going for as long as he could. After coffee, huh? I know. Yeah, <laughs> that was a bold move, Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> In 2013, Senator Marco Rubio quoted Jay-Z lyrics during a filibuster, which I, I tried to find a video of it and I was not successful because I just really wanted to see that guy do Jay-Z lyrics. <laughs> In that same year, Ted Cruz spent 21 hours reading Shakespeare, Green Eggs and Ham, and discussing his opinions on White Castle hamburgers um, during a bid to defund the Affordable Care Act, which technically wasn't a filibuster, but I wanted to bring it up anyway. <laughs> well, that gets into the nature of how the filibuster has changed now where essentially it's it's very hard to get control of the floor and hold it like that and do any real damage because in that case senate the senate this is all right sorry to interrupt here but this no, is no no get, in, get into it andy please <laughs> The Senate is an incredibly odd place with an odd set of rules. And what was happening in that case, in the case of Ted Cruz there, was that this, as he approached noon of the following day, that Senate day's, day of business was ending and a, new day, and a new day was beginning, which meant that a prayer was going to be given by the chaplain. And the majority leader at the time, Harry Reid, rest in peace, offered to let Cruz go for a while longer, like about another hour, I think, if I remember right. Um, but Cruz wanted unlimited time to speak 
and he was declined. So that offer was declined and he had no, he essentially had no choice but to yield the floor. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's usually what happens with a lot of these um, because Rand, Rand Paul has given a couple double digit long speeches. Yep, I believe he had a 13 hour one yeah, at one point. Yeah, he's, he's done one. And that's the debate on all of these, which is, is this actually technically a filibuster or is it not? In one of the cases with Paul, it was because he kind of did prolong Senate business on being able to complete a trade, some trade related legislation and move on to a renewal of the Patriot Act. But in, and another time, he just talked for 10 hours about the U.S.'s drone policy, but he wasn't able to delay a vote on John Brennan to be CIA director. It wasn't technically a filibuster. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure there's any point in anyone normal devoting any energy into <laughs> <laughs> the argument of why something is or is not a filibuster. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to find a clear answer about that either. I I mean, I'll be I did. I had some fun researching for this episode because some of these are just the, the things that people use to fill the time are kind of funny. But yeah, I, it's it is weird because there's really no no straightforward answer on that. Correct. Some people now essentially say that it can't be a filibuster if you're not actually preventing the Senate from doing its business. But I've seen other congressional reporters and such people who have been reporting on the body for a long time basically say, if that's not a filibuster, what what is a filibuster? Mm-hmm. You know, a guy is still holding the floor for nine hours, can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> has to stand, you know, then what else is it? Didn't they get rid of the requirement for uh, standing up and giving speeches for a little while? Do I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, the, the rules for the filibuster, so I, like like I said, the, the standing and talking for a long time is, is the talking filibuster, but what we've seen more recently is what we call the silent filibuster, which stems from a couple different rule changes. As we're talking about the history of the filibuster, 1917 comes up a lot because that's when Rule 22 was enacted, which is uh, the cloture rule. And this made it possible to break a filibuster with a two-thirds majority vote. Then that rule was modified in 1975 when the Senate reduced the number of votes to 60. That new supermajority requirement essentially made talking filibusters obsolete. And that's where we got this silent filibuster from. Yeah, and the Senate also essentially works on a two-track kind of system where now they can move on to, unless someone is actually engaging in a talking filibuster, the Senate can move on to other business while another bill is, quote, being filibustered, meaning they just cannot get the 60 votes to end debate or even proceed to the debate. That opens up a whole nother, like... We're going full C-SPAN on all you guys here today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so essentially you could be filibustering a particular bill and the Senate could say, that's fine. We're just going to let you stand there and talk and then we're going to go over here and do something else. I think if someone is standing and talking, they have to they have to stick with that. Then then that's the business of the floor. Yeah. But what really happens is that the Senate runs on a system of quote, unanimous consent, which is if you watch C-SPAN. I do not. 
Okay. <laughs> well, actually, you have to watch C-SPAN 2 for, uh, for, Senate proceed- oh for Senate proceedings. A lot of times in the Senate, whenever you, whenever you see someone who either the majority leader or during morning business or just whenever there's where senators are just allowed to kind of make speeches, five-minute speeches, ten-minute speeches, whatever, they always ask – they'll ask the chair, the presiding officer, Madam President, uh, I ask unanimous consent to blah, 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 blah. And then you'll hear the chair say – Without objection, because usually when you zoom out the camera, nobody else is in the chamber. Um, <laughs> right. And so any, if, if Chuck Schumer wanted to walk into the Senate alone and nobody else is in there except for him and the, and the presiding officer, he can say, you know, I'd like to ask unanimous consent that we move to such and such, the voting rights bill. And no one would be there to object. And then he could ask for unanimous consent to end debate without objection. Then he could ask to take a vote without without recording the yeas and nays without objection, and then and then a, a, a bill could become a law that way. But someone in opposition would be on the floor to prevent that from happening. Right. Essentially, when someone says, you know, he asked unanimous consent, you know, there's Mitch McConnell saying, "I object," and then you essentially would have to take a recorded vote to say proceed on the motion to proceed to debate on the... See, and you say we're boring, okay? <laughs> I just want to jump in for a second. You're always complaining whenever we start talking about old Supreme Court decisions, and I'm over here falling asleep in this. And okay. so you can you can have... Uh, you can filibuster a motion to proceed to debate on a bill. You can try to invoke cloture to end debate on a bill. The only thing that doesn't require 60 votes is an actual final vote on a bill. Like when people, like a bill can pass 51 to 49 and you say, well, how the heck did that happen? Doesn't it all require 60 votes? No, the actual vote on final passage of piece of legislation is a simple majority vote. But to get there is where we run into all these issues with cloture. I've totally derailed what you were talking about. That's okay. I I was just I was just having fun with historical stuff. If we want to get back into it, I can tell you about the longest talking filibuster. Get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll try to. <laughs> Jumping back in the way way back machine. The longest talking filibuster was by South Carolina Senator and segregationist Strom Thurmond, who filibustered for more than 24 hours in opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And as I was reading about this, the only thing I could think of is that somehow the the grossest part of that situation was not the fact that while he was giving this 24-hour speech, he sustained himself on pieces of hamburger meat, pumpernickel, and and orange juice. Raw hamburger meat? I mean, I hope it was cooked. <laughs> oh, no. The stuff I was reading did not confirm that it was cooked, but I sure hope it was. But I just thought, oh, my God, you know, you're, oh, you're just mixing, like, orange juice and pumpernickel. But, I mean, realistically, not, in my opinion, not the worst thing he did that day. So, I guess. <laughs> I think the longest filibuster in Senate history is 60 days, but that is not... That was not all straight talking. Yeah. That was in 1964 to prevent ending debate and moving to a vote on final passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64. But that was a concerted effort by a a group of Southern senators to essentially co-opt Senate business. There was... There were a couple long individual talking filibusters in that during that, like Robert Byrd held the floor at the end uh, for something like 14 hours or something like that, (laughs) railing eloquently against the Civil Rights Act. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, That brings up a good point that many 
critics of the filibuster do point to that history that it has been many of the times that the filibuster has been used has been to derail civil rights legislation. It was used by a lot of pro-slavery senators in the 19th century and by segregationists through the 40s and 50s. Even last year, when he was giving his eulogy for Georgia Congressman John Lewis, President Obama called the filibuster a Jim Crow relic. And of the 30 filibusters that have actually derailed legislation between 1917 and 1994, half of them were civil rights bills. So that's something that it comes up a lot in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was kind of watered down, in essence, to avoid a long filibuster after, you know, Thurmond gave his day long, uh, whatever you want to call it. His day. <laughs> is that the one? Is that the one where he was reading from the phone book? I think so. He read a lot of different things. I think he was re he read from the Constitution. He read from which which it seems like a lot of people do. Like I know Ted Cruz did that a little bit. Reading the Constitution is a pretty common one. I think like just get a little more creative with it is really what I'm asking. A. Aronson. <laughs> Adam Aronson. <laughs> Alex Aronson. <laughs> All right. So besides the history, the problematic history of the filibuster, and obviously there are political considerations where it seems like, you know, the minority party is always in favor of the filibuster and the majority party is always not in favor, kind of for obvious reasons. What other problems are there with, with the filibuster? Why does it get everybody so angry? One thing that I really struck me in all this is that the, the use of the filibuster has really skyrocketed in the last decade or so. The, the filibuster has been used... I'm talking about 1917 again. So since that rule change in 1917, the filibuster has been used roughly 2000 times. Like Andy was saying, sometimes it's hard to tell what exactly is a filibuster and what's not. But about half of those were in the last 12 years. Because on most legislation now, there are there will be at least one cloture vote. And so anything requiring a cloture vote, you can consider a filibuster, even if nobody held the floor and talked for hours. And then I some of the, I guess, more philosophical arguments against it is one um, that I think has some credence to it is um, population disparities. So if you think about the fact that each state has the same number of senators, um, the 26 least populous states in the country account for 17% of the population, but everybody's got the same number of senators. So even bills with a lot of public support can be blocked by senators who represent a very small minority with a filibuster. <laughs> Getting close there, Laura. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I, I did not say anything. <laughs> That was my personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm these, <laughs> not a joke, just a fact, but it, it is something to think about because it's like, would getting rid of the filibuster solve that? I don't know. Probably not. Obviously people are frustrated with Congress for not getting anything done. I feel like that might be the main issue that people are having with the filibuster is that it seems like it's making it hard to pass any law, regardless of whether... Mm -hmm. We have a majority vote or not. But I did want to talk a little bit about why that's kind of the Senate's prerogative to decide to not do anything <laughs> yeah. and to make these kind of weird rules. Because as you can imagine on this show, we always like to talk about whether things are constitutional or not. I don't know of any significant claims that have said the filibuster is unconstitutional. There are a few, th a few points that have been raised. Some are better than others. 
for example, neither the Constitution, though, nor the Senate rules mention or mandate the filibuster. So it's not like this is baked into the Constitution. And there's also some other issues back when the filibuster was still in place for judicial nominations. There were some arguments that it was infringing on the constitutional right of the president to nominate uh, judges and other federal agency heads and that sort of thing. Because if you just filibuster every nomination, you're not letting the president do their job. So there's a couple of different angles to take with that. But ultimately, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution says that each house may determine the rules of its proceedings and punish its members and with concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. As we know, the Constitution is pretty short and doesn't always get into specifics, so that's really about all it is. That first sentence, each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, that's about as clear as the Constitution gets. So... Yeah. Arguing that the filibuster is unconstitutional is a bit of an uphill battle because it says right there in Section 2, Clause 2, that yeah. it's the Senate's business. And if they want to make rules that make them not get anything done, that's that's up to them. Yeah. That's but, their prerogative. No, yeah. Some people have called the, um, you know, it's always been referred to as the, quote, nuclear option when changing, when changing filibuster rules, like was done in 2013 to change Senate filibuster rules to allow cloture on uh, presidential nominees and judges not of the Supreme Court with a simple majority. Um, many, some have referred to this instead of the nuclear option as the, quote, constitutional option because it is essentially allowing the Senate to, quick, to quickly give its, you know, advice and consent that the Constitution calls for. But like you just said, you know, there's a pretty strong argument to be made that the Senate can make rules to consider nominees however the heck it wants to. Another issue that seems to come up the more the filibuster is used is that as we see filibusters go up, we also see executive orders go up because if Congress is stagnant, then a lot of presidents don't have much of a choice in, I, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. you know, that wasn't a <laughs> sentence, but anyway, they, <laughs> they don't have much of a choice to get things done. And so it, yeah, it becomes this, this tension in checks and balances. Yeah. You st- you write laws that grant regulatory authority to the executive branch to interpret the laws, how they see fit. And then you don't legislate. And then, you know, what's, what do people like to say a lot now? Uh, F around and find out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. At other points in the history of the U.S. Congress, the president and control of the Senate were of different parties and they were able to legislate. Presidents Eisenhower and Nixon were able to legislate with Democratic Congresses just in in a recent memory. President Reagan as well. Um, President Bush Sr. President Clinton too. But I mean, that's kind of when it really started to go downhill was in the 90s. I don't know why I thought that was funny. I'm sorry. What? That like <laughs> stuff started circling the toilet in the 90s? Everything I mean, went downhill in the 90s. And I'm like, oh, great. That's my entire oh. lifetime. Thanks. <laughs> But that's more of an argument for other podcasts to talk about forces of negative partisanship and all that stuff and why opposite parties are unable to legislate anymore. <laughs> you are doing an admirable job of uh, avoiding that topic, both of you. I am impressed. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure we'd be able to do it, but uh, yeah, nicely done. Andy, I want to know what you think about this. I, I thought this was interesting. So some people have 
called for the filibuster to be abolished altogether. Mm -hmm. The the likelihood of that happening is probably pretty slim. But recently, President Biden hinted that he supports returning to the talking filibuster. He told ABC News, I don't think you have to eliminate it. You have to you have to do it. What it used to be when I first got to the Senate in the old days, you had to stand up and command the floor and keep talking, which, in my opinion, at least would make this more fun. Do you think that returning to a talking filibuster would make a difference in all this? To an extent. I think it would make a difference. I think you would probably see a lot of more, you would probably see more attention placed on the Senate, maybe. I think people might start to tune in for some of these speeches um, if they were deployed. Um, But I also think it would force, it would force, maybe I'm being too Pollyannish too. Maybe I'm just like (laughs) the president. Maybe I'm hopelessly naive. Oh, there it is. There it is. Um, About the the Senate. There it is. Um, (laughs) I'd like to think that it would that it actually would make a difference all other rules of the senate and structure of the senate and all of that not changing you know you still if you still want the senate to remain as kind of an upper house cooling chamber of government uh i think you do still have to allow different rule maybe allowing different rules of debate than the house is is a good thing mm-hmm. i it's hard to say because you would i mean maybe we would uh, start electing a lot younger senators because they would just have more of the stamina yeah. for it because because there would be let's not kid ourselves in these days, there would be a lot more talking filibusters than there ever were in the days that they were more common. Mm-hmm. There, there would be just boatloads more yeah. now. Um, they'd all be doing it for the gram and the TikTok. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of what I'm what I'm wondering is if we if we went back to a talking filibuster in the time of social media, just what what would happen? And I kind of want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just like Justin, like I have that like little bit of anarchist streak in me that like, let's just see what happens. Yeah, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't tell people how the actual procedure failed earlier this week to remove the legislative filibuster. This is I mean, this is some really Byzantine stuff, but it's kind of. If you if you were watching and utterly perplexed at what was going on, what essentially happened, this is the same process that unfolded in 2013. And then it, again in 2017, when the Republican-controlled Senate changed the cloture rules for Supreme Court nominees to require a simple majority to invoke cloture there. And then what uh, the Democratic-controlled Senate tried to do to eliminate the, essentially, quote, eliminate the legislative filibuster which is that Senate rules require 67 votes to change, mm-hmm. not 60. Important rule, like it requires 67 votes to change Senate rules, and those are also subject to unlimited. That is also subject to unlimited debate. So you could filibuster a change of the Senate rules, but instead, what you do is you invoke the quote nuclear option during debate. The majority leader or someone, but usually it would be the Senate majority leader, uh, raises a point of order with the. Presiding officer, knowing knowing full well that it contravenes a standing rule, basically saying, "I will raise a point of order here." In that, so here's I have a, a blow by blow here of what like of how Harry Reid said it actually. So what he says is, "I raise a point of order that the vote on cloture under Rule 22 for all nominations other than Supreme Court of the United States is by majority vote." Then the presiding officer then would say, "Under the rules, the point of order is not sustained because that violates the rule, the rules of the Senate." And then what the majority leader then says is, "I appeal the ruling of the chair and ask for a roll call vote." And that is only subject to a simple majority up or down vote. So 
you would essentially then have the majority caucus, in this case, the Democratic caucus, vote to not sustain the ruling of the chair. And then the, and then the presiding officer would say, you know, under the precedent set by the Senate today, the threshold for cloture, blah, 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 blah. And so that's the kind of, quote, nuclear option way of doing it. Um, and that's what they tried to do, and they failed. And thus, the legislative filibuster survived. <laughs> all right. I think I followed all of that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, it, it is quite quite complex. But I think, you know, so we we do have, still have the filibuster for judicial nominations, and we do... I'm sorry, we don't have the filibuster for judicial nominations, but we do... Well... We do. You do in that you still have to take a cloture in that the minority can still require a roll call, a cloture vote on a judicial nomination. It would only take a simple majority to invoke cloture versus 60 votes. Sure, is, yeah. is the difference. And then when you invoke cloture, you still have 30 hours of debate until you can move on to the final vote, unless, you know, getting back to that unanimous consent uh, concept, they kind of just fast forward and move ahead to the final vote. Interesting. Okay. I mean, mad respect to the absolute beasts <laughs> who cover the U.S. Senate and understand <laughs> all of this stuff yeah. in in way more detail than I, than I ever was able to do in my in my five years there. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing I did want to bring up is that yeah, like Andy's our sort of resident political junkie and and was was sort of steeped in on this in all this for several years. So I'm glad that that you got to talk about it. There's politics and then there's learning Senate procedure <laughs> completely <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <It's, laughs> that is true. The people who take the time to really understand deeply how the Congress conducts its business um, beyond the politics, but like as we've been talking about, the rules that govern each chamber, it is, and how senators are able to use those rules to kind of like execute these clever little gambits is, it's pretty impressive. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. Um, does anybody feel like summing that up? Sure. <laughs> um, I can, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I thought of that joke on the fly, but then that's all I had. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm here for the walls. I got nothing else. <laughs>